Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. Okay, so hopefully you're in Acts uh, already, and because we're continuing on the study of Acts, Acts chapter 21, and going to read the first 14 verses. We're in that um, portion of Acts where it's tra- so much traveling as he goes toward Rome. Uh, there's some real nuggets, some beautiful things in these chapters, um, and uh, but there's so much travelogue, and, and we learn as we go. Chapter 21, Now it came to pass that when we had departed from them, the saints in the previous city, Ephesus, and set sail, running a straight course, we came to Kos the following day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera, and finding a ship, sailing over to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyra, for there the ship was to unload her cargo. And finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. Seven days. They told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. When we had come to the end of those days, we departed and went on our way, and they all accompanied us with wives and children till we were out of the city. That's something neat to picture, kind of like when we were in Africa and walking with the girls to the church, you know, and things like that. Everybody walking together, you know. Um, And we knelt down on the shore and prayed. When we had taken our leave of one another, we boarded the ship and they returned home. Verse 7, And when we had finished our voyage from Tyre, we came to Ptolemus, greeted the brethren, and stayed with them one day. On the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven. What is that a reference to? Deacons. Yeah, those Acts 6 uh, deacon servants that were the first to serve. Philip was one of them. We know about some of the things he did in earlier chapters and his buddy Stephen, who did great things too. Um, So uh, now, as I remember it, When Stephen was being martyred, um, uh, there was a young fellow there that uh, hated the Christians and uh, took care of watching the the outer cloaks while they were stoning Stephen to death. Uh, Do you remember? Who who was that? Saul. Same guy. Here he is, Paul. Paul's just his uh, Roman name. Saul was his Hebrew name, like King Saul in the Old Testament, and also from the tribe of Benjamin, you know. So, but Paul was his more Roman uh, legal name and stuff like that. So here's Paul, and he's now staying when he's in Caesarea with Philip the Evangelist, who had to have been friends and in meetings with, uh, once upon a time, Stephen as one of the seven. And, and Paul had uh, been been probably a ringleader. I mean, he watched the coach that day, but we know he was had eyesight problems and stuff like that. So he's probably, I picture Al Capone, you know, with a cigar in his mouth, holding the cloaks and going, sick them, boys, you know, that sort of thing. This is the one we want to get. And, and we know right after that, that Paul was the kind of guy that uh, was using the authority from the priest to arrest saints and bring them back to Jerusalem for trial, and he was breathing threats and death threats, and he'd have people imprisoned. And it looks like Paul, nasty old uh, Saul, you know, helped people even die, you know, men and women both during that time. And uh, so 
man, I bet they had some things to talk about, you know, since he'd been there when Stephen died and Philip had grieved his friend's death. At the time, why Saul thought it was a good thing and Philip thought it was a horrible thing. So he entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. And as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. But Paul answered, What do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased, saying, Well, the will of the Lord be done. And after those days, verse 15 says, we packed up and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us and brought with them a certain Mason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we were to lodge. So the title tonight is Ready to Do Difficult Things. Now let me ask you guys a question. If you like to do easy things, raise your hand. Whew, I love to do easy things. Yeah, every hand raised, every, every hand raised for the, those t- keeping track at home. It's easy for me to eat an ice cream sandwich. How about you? Yeah, no, not for Kathy, but everybody else. Um, It's easy to open up presents on your birthday or Christmas, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's easy for a groom to obey when the preacher says, you may kiss your bride. Have you ever heard a, a groom say, it's just too hard. I can't do it. It's too difficult. I can't do it. No, he puckers up and lets her loose, you know, and gives his bride a kiss. But today we're going to see how the early Christians model for us being ready to do difficult things for the Lord Jesus. So we're always ready to do easy things. But what separates growing and fruit-bearing Christians apart is how they are also ready to do difficult things when they're convinced that it's from God to do it. And they know that they must obey God rather than man. Today's passage is about Paul is mostly about the travel that Paul and his companions did at the end of his third missionary journey as he went to Jerusalem. But all along the way, we see the early believers doing difficult things. And so we're just going to look through some of them in these 14 verses and draw out some points. And the first one is that the early disciples modeled for us being ready for emotional farewells. Emotional farewells. Um, Luke says in verse 1, that uh, in, in, in some translations it says that we tore ourselves away from those elders that were at Ephesus. Came to pass when we departed from them. So they had to pull away from them because they had wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him. And uh, they, they accompanied Paul to the ship we read at the end of the last chapter. There's so much love there. There's so much emotion there. And I wonder if you've ever had to tear yourself away from a friend or a loved one going to do the Lord's work. Maybe a, another part of the state, another part of the country. Uh, they felt like they were following Paul's, uh, God's call on their life. I remember how every few years it used to be so difficult because my sister and her husband and their sweet twin nephews would come in and um, they'd be on furlough. You know, missionaries in Papua New Guinea, they'd be on furlough. And we would have such good times together uh, uh, at family things and at our house and the church that always addressed the church I was at during that time. Greg and Chrissy Barkman, Zachary and Samuel, 
And, you know, we didn't want to just see them once every four years. We wanted to see them every year, multiple times a year. And yet they were following God's call in their life. And when they, we knew they were going back after those furlough years, it was so emotional. We knew they were doing the right thing. We loved them, but it was so emotional saying that goodbye. Everything inside you used to say, we should fellowship in the same place forever. So you want to hold on to that time together. And, and one day, praise the Lord, like the hymn says, then in fellowship sweet, right? We'll sit at his feet, walk by his side in the way. One day, all the goodbyes will be done. We'll be in heaven and later on a new earth forever, and there'll be no more a goodbying, you know. Uh, but these are the days where God's call sometimes calls us to different places. So now is the time when God's people are on various deployments to reach people before it's too late. Another way we experienced this back at my previous church, and, and we're going to do it here too at some point, you know, is... You know, you, you have different staff members, you have different people that grow up in the life of the church, and you're not physical blood, but you love them and you appreciate the job they do in ministry. And then God's call on them is to help another church somewhere in the town or to help be part of a church plant somewhere else or to go to a missionary call. And during my 17 years as pastor up there, we had over 50 people accept a, receive a call to do something for the Lord. And some we have remained real close with over the years, like Joe Fleming, who's also now uh, being sponsored, training to send by our church here. Uh, you know, um, and, and part of you goes, oh, I just wish everybody could stay together here at the same church and keep on building this place up. And yet sometimes building up the wider body of Christ means saying goodbye, you know. <laughs> Um, man, I, I, I'd be perfectly content if Isaac Mooneyham and Corey were still here in the church and we all still had a role to play in building up the people at the tabernacle. But as he followed his call to Fuquay Verina, uh, man, we love hearing the stories there and seeing the kids and all those different things. And that's just part of it, the hello and the goodbye and emotional farewells. No one will worship the Lamb and fellowship together again in heaven. Well, in verse 1, we learn that they started in one of the smaller uh, coast hugging boats. Um, so those boats would take a one-day journey. So the, as you can follow this on your map in the back of your Bible, but I put on the back of your Bible not a picture of the cities they were going to, but instead one of the seven wonders of the world, uh, or at least what they think it may have looked like. So Paul on that journey, his boat would have gone right underneath those big Colossus of Rhodes, uh, seven wonders of the world feet there as they sailed into the harbor there at Rhodes. And so they were just going right, uh, 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 hugging the coast in the first part. In verse 2, we're going to see them getting on a bigger ship that could sail nonstop night and day for five days over the rest of the 400-mile journey. So when we look at archaeological evidence and other things, we know that from uh, Patera, they'd get on a bigger board, a bigger boat, and get out at sea a little bit more. And these other ones were just hugging the coast a little bit as they went. So what's interesting in, is here... The way Paul, uh, the way Luke writes this, even about the way the winds go and the different shipwrecks and things that we see from here to 20, from chapter 21 to 28, it's exactly what all the archaeological evidence looks like for this kind of journey and traveling during that time. Uh, just another uh, way that the scriptures is reinforced that he got these details right. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit helped him do that. And he's also right when he says in Acts 16.31, the only way to be saved is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, right? So pretty cool. Pretty cool. It's worth pointing out. They were not only ready to do difficult things like these um, ships with the possibility of shipwrecks. I mean, 
Paul doesn't even tell you all the shipwrecks he's got as we go through Acts. Uh, Luke doesn't tell about them all because in Corinthians, uh, you know, Paul winds up being shipwrecked more times than Acts covers, you know. So that was just part of it, you know. Uh, you take a stagecoach and wheels fall off, you know. You uh, take a bus, sometimes you sit on the side of the road and the different hassles with travel, difficult travel for them. A shipwreck was a possibility and some of that happened. But they were also ready for extended hospitality. So that's your next fill in the blank, the word extended. So we read here in verse 4 that the team found some disciples at Tyra when they got there and stayed there how many days? Seven days. That's a long time to have people stay with you that aren't part of your immediate family. <laughs> verse 10 also says they stayed with Philip's family for many days. Now I wonder how that played out. Here we are. Honey, honey, we get to drop everything and host Paul and the dozen or so guys with him for a week. <laughs> Most of us would simply say no to hosting others like that. But hospitality was such a big deal to Old Testament and New Testament saints that they were ready for that. Most people today would claim that they're too busy, can't be bothered to change their routine for a little time. But the early church simply valued ministry and relationship more than they worried about personal inconveniences. And uh, this can be overdone. <laughs> I overdid it once upon a time, I'll tell you. Uh, so as a youth pastor, back up the previous church, golly, we had uh, one of them Disciple Now weekends like our youth are about to have. This Discipleship Now weekend coming up is such a big event for us and about 17 churches total that Westover Christian has said, we're going to cancel the Monday after that weekend just because we know the kids are going to be so worn out after that thing. It's going to be such a big party and stuff. And Alan and, uh, has worked with Roger uh, from over at, uh, um, you know, the church. North Main? Yeah, North Main. Roger uh, got Alan in on this thing early, and Alan's really helped uh, Roger and the others. They've come together as a team, and they're at least at three different churches this year for different things. Really cool. So glad, glad it's happening. It's really neat. Um, and, uh, but anyway, I was telling you about my, uh, experience with a discipleship now weekend. So, um, one of my host homes backed out on me. And so at the last minute I needed a place to put about 10 kids and Elizabeth was eight and a half months pregnant. <laughs> And I said yes to all that before I thought about all that. <laughs> Woo! That's, a, that's the first time we went to marriage counseling, okay. Uh, but anyway, it worked out great. But that was hard, you know. Uh, yeah, it was about for the rest of the year. Um, so I was talking to a lady one time whose uh, kids lived uh, one state over. And it had been two years since they had visited her. And... Uh, when she'd ask why, they say, well, they're too busy. Too busy to visit, Ma. Too busy to visit. Well, if you're too busy to see your mama and papa as they decline in health, you're too busy, aren't you? You know? What if she had said, I'm too busy to take 10 months to grow you in the womb? I'm too busy to spend 18 years raising you, you know? Uh, but um, you can't be too busy to visit your loved ones. It's too important not to do it. And the same goes for close friends. And the point I'm making here is that uh, Paul was coming through and here were brothers and sisters in Christ that had a need. And it was just secondary nature to say, okay, there's not, there might be big time hotels and motels and things in the future, uh, you know, that you go to and just pay your money and check in. But man, that's supposed to happen with family and friends traveling through the ancient world. And they would. So this became places that helped. And I really like that. 
You know, I've always wondered, um, since Joseph was from Bethlehem, uh, and that's where he had to go to take Mary, his pregnant wife, and register, I've often wondered how many relatives of his said no before the inn said, well, you can stay in the with it where we have the animals in the back, you know. But there must have been a few, right? Uh, we got the same last name. Help me. We ain't got time to help you. Too busy, too inconvenienced, you know. Or oh, we're already getting a mint, selling our space as an Airbnb to the people coming for the census, you know. Uh, you ain't got much. You got nothing, you know. I've wondered about that. But the saints were ready for extended hospitality, and that's convicting because uh, hospitality is a big deal in the Scriptures, and we need to be hospitable in all the ways. Uh, and, and I'll tell you what, um, many of you have been examples of that uh, in the past, and um, so thankful that when we, I needed a place to stay when we first got here, Don Sparks let me stay in his farmhouse there. Didn't heat it for me, but it, it, was, it was nice to have the place to stay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, just really thankful for how this looks. And, and you know what? I think that with our younger Christians, this is on the rise again. So that's a positive development. You know, Christians wanting to meet together and be hospitable with each other. And so, and of course, things like foster care that uh, our good friends, the Balbans are involved with is another way to extend hospitality because that's going to take a lot of your time in life and the way the church helps people through care portal and such situations, good stuff. Another thing they were ready to do was they were ready to forgive. They were ready to forgive. We talked about that this past Sunday a little bit, but um, I've already set it up for you guys. How hard would it be to fellowship and even host a man in your home who had been partly responsible for the death of a friend or coworker? It would be. Now, maybe 20 years has passed. I don't know. That's what I think when you put all the numbers together. 20 years have passed. But let's just think. I mean, think about your best friends in life, people that you've cherished, that were church members. Uh, and if uh, 20 years later, somebody that was partly responsible for their life had completely given their life to Christ and had gotten God's forgiveness and served their time with the law, if it was one of those situations too, uh, man, would you want to have them in your home <laughs> around your daughters? No! <laughs> no. Um, but, uh, and that probably was true of some uh, people in Tyra um, that uh, would push away. But, you know, the Christians in the church there and Philip uh, in Caesarea, my goodness, um, some of the folks in Tyre may have thought, well, gosh, Paul was back then, but by now he's the beloved Apostle Paul. He's shown a complete change of life, and they welcomed him home. They housed him there. Philip does the same thing in Caesarea. So Tyre is in Phoenicia. And I've written there Acts eleven nineteen. Let me read it to you. Those who had been scattered as a result of the persecution that started because of Stephen made their way as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. Tyre is in Phoenicia, one of the bigger cities in Phoenicia. So undoubtedly, before Paul stayed with Philip that he had history with related to Stephen, some of that might have been true with Paul and his companions related to Tyre as well. Um, we know back in chapter 6, Philip had served alongside Stephen as one of the first seven deacons. Paul had been instrumental in Stephen's death. So 20 years have passed, but it's not time that heals all wounds. We say time heals all wounds. No, it doesn't. Time can give perspective, so that's your fill in the blank. 
Time can give perspective, the heat of the moment can't. Sometimes you're so angry at somebody in the heat of the moment, you just need to go away so you don't curse and throw things at them or kill them, you know. But sometimes looking back a little bit, you're like, you know what? I didn't behave very Christianly in that situation. They didn't either. But they are my brother in Christ. They are my sister in Christ. I called them a, a no good do for, doing for nothing because they left our church and went to another church, you know, or something like that. But times passed and you now saw, okay, gosh, it was a pretty good decision for them to worship God over there and we're still worshiping God over here. And things like the D-Now Weekend bring us together. Man, our kids are even going to stay in the same home, it looks like, or something, you know. And, 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 and just good things happen, you know. You need to be open. Christians shouldn't be bridge burners. They should be bridge builders. And uh, it takes hard work to forgive and, where possible, move on in relationship. And I love how the early church modeled the words of Christ. Because quite frankly, we often see people nurse bitternesses for years and years and decades and decades rather than uh, finally give it to the Lord and go on and have the conversations they need to have with people uh, that they've never asked to forgive them or vice versa. Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts for we as, also, as, we as, also, as we have also forgiven our debtors. Luke 17, 3 and 4, be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. This past week we talked about the two parts of forgiveness. The vertical always happens where before God we say, God, I don't want to be embittered toward that person. I'm releasing it. I'm not going to keep on thinking ill of them. When their name comes to my mind, I'm going to bless instead of curse. I'm going to pray rather than persecute. I'm going to do good rather than to the, even those who have despitefully used me. And then when the person comes to own what they did and ask for forgiveness, you extend it to them doesn't mean there'll always be a situation where you'll go on exactly as things were. Sometimes it's prudent to say, well, that's good, but we still have to break up, you know, in, in a business deal or a, uh, you know, work arrangement or um, in some cases the wife forgives the philandering, cheating husband and still loves him but can't trust him. So she's got grounds for divorce and does. She loves him. She's forgiven him but uh, there's not going to be ongoing relationship because it's just been too true of him. Sometimes she gets back in that relationship anyway, but all these different things. So forgiveness, even when asked for and extended, doesn't necessarily mean everything will be just as it was. Sometimes it just can't be. Um, but what can be different uh, going forward is uh, the cessation of um, hostility in mind and thought um, so when, when God forgives us, we have peace with Him where there wasn't peace. And fortunately, with us and Him, there's new and ongoing and vibrant relationship too. Um, so I think of the Elliot and Saint families, you know, that forgave the Aka Warani men who had killed their dads and then uh, some of their, those, those men who had killed their husbands got saved and became leaders of the Warani Christian church, you know. Uh, so... You know the story I'm talking about, uh, Jim Elliott and all that good stuff. It's a great story told in the movie, The End of the Steer, Spear. By the way, if you think of them and tell that story, make sure and call them the Warani. That's their people group. Aka means savages. And so it was always a derogatory thing to call them the Aka Indians. They're the Warani, and um, there's a great church among the Warani because of forgiveness and the power of the gospel. Verse 9, well, they were ready for sexual integrity and a verbal witness. 
And so here we think specifically of Philip and his four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. He had raised his daughters well. They were saving their sexuality for marriage. They were all virgins. And um, I'm guessing at least one of Philip's daughters had made the commitment never to marry so she could be more of a witness for the Lord. I'm guessing at least one of Philip's daughters wanted to be married but was mature enough in her faith not to compromise her purity. And um, so, uh, you know, these were girls. And when it says they're prophetesses, they spoke about God. Man, they took the opportunities to influence people for God. Uh, it doesn't mean the other strictures about being the pastor or elder of a church aren't there. You know, that's a, a male role. But, uh, man, we're so thankful that they took all the opportunities they could to influence uh, women and children and everybody they could for Christ. You know, so pretty neat to read of these uh, outspoken daughters who were also known for their purity. Um, and I put just the word here. The person who gives in to temptation quickly and sins doesn't know anything about temptation compared to the one who faces it head on in faith and does not compromise their biblical convictions. Um, anybody when being tempted can give in, but you don't know about fighting temptation the way somebody uh, that uh, is tempted and, and doesn't go there, you know. Um, in that sense, that's why Jesus can relate to everybody, because he never once gave in. Whatever the temptation was, he never once gave in. So he's the ultimate one who can help us because he knows how to lick it, you know. Uh, and empowers us through the new birth to lick it. No temptation overtakes us, but such as is common to man, God is faithful with the temptation, will provide the way of escape also. So, so thankful that um, they were ready to model purity, but also being outspoken for the Lord. Well, verses 10 through 14, we also see they were ready to suffer and ready to die. So it's interesting how many ways Paul is warned about suffering, arrest, and possible death awaiting him in Jerusalem. It's almost comical. I mean, we just keep getting this refrain. He's convinced that he needs to press these legal matters all the way to Jerusalem and from there to Rome because uh, the bottom line is there were these Judaizers who were throwing cities that he would witness and plant churches in, they were throwing him in, them into havoc by insisting that even though Judaism was an okay religion, Christianity should be forbidden and that it's impossible to be a faithful Jew and turn to Jesus. And so Paul, in the last part of his ministry, he realized not every disciple who ever came after him was going to be able to take the number of beatdowns he took, took down. So he said, okay, I can, I can just run to the next place and let the Christians back there handle it each time, or I can take some of this on myself, force myself as a Roman citizen to a Roman court, and get the court to weigh in on it in hopes that Rome will also make Christianity a officially acceptable religion, which wouldn't happen until the 300s. I mean, this is still way out. But Paul was willing to force the issue so that others wouldn't suffer as much as he did. And so even in there, he was thinking about religious liberty that, of course, Baptists have stood for from the very start of being Baptists and things. You know, we, uh, the Roman Catholics and Protestants agreed on one thing early on, and that was Anabaptists and then later Baptists were, were, uh, were troublemakers for saying that church and state should be separate, you know. 
Um, and uh, we did. We thought, man, we don't want to have, we don't want to get control of the country and then make everybody believe like what we want to do. We just want to be left alone to preach and to witness. Because we think when we preach and witness and the Holy Spirit takes it up that they'll choose our God <laughs> or our Baptist faith instead of a state tie-in uh, church that's polluted so faith, you know, and those things. So um, we've already seen times Paul would listen to the church and change plans to avoid a plot. He did that back in chapter 20. Um, and uh, the Holy Spirit, we know, had told Paul to go to Jerusalem, but that more suffering and imprisonment awaited him. He was going anyway so he could share about God's grace. And he knew Jerusalem, being the headquarters of Judaism, needed that message. The works-oriented Judaizers corrupting the church needed it also. Around the Roman Empire, Jewish believers and Gentile believers were fellowshipping together. That needed to happen in Jerusalem also. So Paul's willing to press this issue for the sake not only of the gospel, for the sake of religious liberty, but also for the sake of Jews knowing that as they worship Jesus as their Messiah, they need to worship with uh, all the Gentiles that are being brought to faith together and not have two different expressions of the faith. Uh, look again at verse 4. This cat here in verse 4, they said to Paul through the Spirit not to go to Jerusalem. And we could wish that Dr. Luke, the writer of Acts, gave us more details here. Because the Holy Spirit, I think we can agree, the Holy Spirit being God and being omniscient is not going to give people contradictory messages. He's not going to tell me one thing and tell David another. And we try to compare notes, basically say, well, uh, you know, uh, I must be right because the Holy Spirit told me. But if we feel both feel the Holy Spirit's told us that. Um, so we hear our, our options for, you know, the fact that Paul had, the Holy Spirit had told Paul to go. And these guys, it says through the Spirit, are saying um, they told Paul through the Spirit not to go up to Jerusalem. So here are our options. Paul might have correctly heard from the Holy Spirit and they didn't. Or they might have correctly heard from the Holy Spirit and Paul didn't. Um, or Luke gives us only part of the information we need, and there are advocates of each of you. Do you understand what we're talking about here? Um, I think they heard from the Holy Spirit that trouble awaited Paul, and then they concluded and passed along that trouble meant Paul should avoid the assignment. So Paul, if you go up to Jerusalem, trouble awaits you. And Paul says, yeah, the Holy Spirit told me to go up to Jerusalem. Yeah, but if you go up to Jerusalem, trouble awaits you. Yeah, and the Holy Spirit said, you know, so sometimes we're actually saying things that aren't contradictory. They're just going to be hard. The obedience part is going to be hard. Trouble awaits you in Jerusalem. Yeah, that's true. Suffering, maybe beatings, possible death. Yeah, the Holy Spirit told me to go. I'm called from Him and I'm to go. Well, but if you go, <laughs> the Holy Spirit says, if you go, you're going to have trouble. Yeah, He's told me to go. He's telling you there's going to be trouble if I go. But there being trouble doesn't mean I'm not supposed to go. Are we, uh, you hear what I'm saying here? Look at verses 10 and 11. And we stayed many days. A certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, Thus says the Spirit, So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So he got real dramatic with it. He took Paul's belt. It looks like he tied himself up and was rolling around on the floor with his hands and feet tied together. This is what's going to happen to you, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem. Yeah, but the Holy Spirit told me to go. Well, the Holy Spirit told me that if you go, you're going to be bound and in prison. It's going to be hard. Yeah, but that's not a contradictory message. You know, but sometimes we hear 
And others of us go, I don't want Pastor Danny to suffer and struggle and have, you know, and, and you know, so he, he says God told him, to, you know, so you have these things, right? So there's some things to weigh through here as we try to process experiencing God type principles. So the Holy Spirit had already told Paul both to go and that troubles awaiting, awaited him. So we learn when we think about experiencing God that God speaks through the Bible, First and foremost, He speaks through the Holy Spirit using the Bible, using things. He uses the body of Christ. Others sometimes have a word for us. As we pray, He communicates things to us that are louder to us than any audible voice. And sometimes He lines up circumstances, open doors, closed doors. If you pray about something and the door slams shut, well, God has spoken, right? Um, if it's just going to be hard, that doesn't mean God hasn't spoken. He's just letting you know, yeah, it's going to be hard. Um, but that does not mean that things fellow Christians advise you on par with the words of the Bible. The Bible makes clear that no word from the Holy Spirit you get in prayer is going to contradict what the Bible tells you to do. So if you think you heard from God, but the message contradicts the Bible, you tell yourself you're mistaken and go with the Bible, right? We just got to. We got to stick with the Word. Fellow believers who are under the Bible's authority can be a source of great confirmation for you. But they can also get caught up in the spirit of the age and advise you to do things the Bible forbids. And in that case, you go with the Bible, you know, because people love you. And sometimes they'll say, well, that'll be hard, so don't do it. God might want you to do it because it's hard. Maybe it being hard will be what leads some other hardhead out there to Christ. I think of an Old Testament example, the days of the spies, Caleb and Joshua, remember them? There was 12 given a report, 12 spies went in, 10 were bad and 2 were good, right? That's what we sing in Sunday school. Um, so circumstances can show you that God has opened a door that was previously closed, but we need to be careful not to think that circumstances in which it will be easy to obey are preferable to circumstances that will require suffering. Because God didn't say... Twelve spies go into the land, and when you see the when you see the measurements of the opponent were to box and fight, whether you think we can take them. God just said, get the whole deal so the people will know everything they're facing. But I've already told you I'm going to whip them through you, you know. So they weren't supposed to weigh in on whether they thought they could beat them. They couldn't do it in their own strength, but God could do it, right? And Caleb and Joshua came back and they said. Hey, it's a great land. Oh, man, we got to promised land. After all those years in Egypt, wandering the wilderness, finally our promised land. And the ten said, it's going to be hard. The people there, they got walled cities, and their biggest Goliath was. They didn't know about Goliath yet, but they're big giants there, you know. They're descendants of the demon spawn, you know, whatever that means back in Genesis 6. You know, some of them type people are there, you know. Uh, it's just, we can't do it. They'll beat us up. But God didn't ask them to weigh in on whether they could win or not. I mean, they, they should have assumed that it was going to be hard, but faith, God will win, and they'll be in on it. So we don't want to say no to some things we feel like God's doing, do just because it's going to be hard or costly. Sometimes the costliest option is the one the Lord wants you to take, you know, for the glory of God. Uh, back in uh, when, when David... Uh, wanted to buy that threshing floor. The guy said, well, I'll give it to you. David said, no, no, this is for God. I'm not going to give to the Lord that which cost me nothing. Um, when uh, Abraham needed to buy the place to bury his dead, the guy said, we'll give it to you. He said, no, no, I'm going to make a down payment on the Holy Land. You know, my descendants are going to walk around and come back here with this deed that that's our land. You know, 
that's our down payment on the Holy Land. You're going to take that money, you know. Uh, so it's pretty cool. Um, so anyway, I think Paul weighed all of these things and knew he could not overlook another trip to Jerusalem. So look at his words in verse 13 again. Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? <laughs> Reminds me of that song, Don't Go Breaking My Heart. Um, for I am, not, I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And Luke, that's powerful, isn't it? Luke in verse 14 says, <laughs> when we saw he would not be persuaded, we said, well, God's will be done then. You know, we don't want you to die, Paul. We can't imagine going on without you. You're a key leader in the early church. But, uh, you know, you've heard from God. And just because it's hard doesn't mean we should keep you from doing it. You know, and sometimes we have to say similar things in blessing our children when they take on difficult things that are in God's will. Um... Wherever Paul went, he was going to encounter some level of opposition and persecution. He wasn't going to avoid Jerusalem for the rest of his life. He was never going to stop being a polarizing figure to Judaizers who were in the wrong. If he had waited, here's your fill in the blank, going later to Jerusalem would only allow the Judaizers' influence to grow, which could lead even more true Jewish Christians astray and keep them from developing relationships with Gentile Christians. So Paul felt compelled to go, even though that could mean possible death. And we ask ourselves, are we ready to do hard things when the Lord calls? We can do it because God is with us. And thank God for all of our veterans. You know, it's not Veterans Day, but veterans who are willing to die and those who did die for our freedoms. And sometimes our fear, at the base of our fear, is just not having peace with God, not being ready to die. After... Um, World War II in London, everybody was afraid because of the Cold War. Oh no, the Soviets got all kinds of weapons and now nuclear weapons and we got them in America too. And here we are in London, the Soviets got them, the Americans got them, and here we are in London and oh no, the bomb's coming over, you know, we could die, we could die, we could die in a... Um, uh, in, in some kind of nuclear event or something like that. So they asked Dr. D. Lloyd-Jones, preacher at the famous Westminster Chapel, will you address a whole group of people on the subject uh, why we don't need to be, uh, you know, why uh, we don't need to be afraid of nuclear weapons falling and killing us? And he did. He said, I'll do that. And he, he was a doctor by background who became a preacher. So he knew how to diagnose things. He says, I need to tell you, it's real. You guys are afraid that you might die in a nuclear bomb attack. So you're afraid of that. Now he said, let me tell you what the real problem is. The real problem is not that you might, that you're not ready to die in a nuclear attack. The problem is you're not ready to die at all. <laughs> and then he shared Christ with them in the gospel. And he said, now if you get Christ right and have faith in him, it won't matter how you die, whether it's some violent thing or some terrible cancer or, you know, uh, peaceful, ripe old age and stuff. You'll die the next moment you'll be with Jesus. So let's address the fear of death. Um, Paul was only doing what he had seen Jesus had modeled in his own expression there. He's like, hey, I'm right with the Lord. He's called me to do difficult things. If I die, I die. And... Uh, Let's just end by me reading Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 here. Since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. 
To learn more about the Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.